Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Four Persons Radio Show fans. This Welcome the to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned today. We're going to do something a little bit different than doing a deep dive on a topic. We're going to be answering some common questions that have come in to me over the years. And so let's get to it. If you would like to have me come speak at your parish, you can contact me at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K, Ken, and the number four persons.com. Or you can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. John, are you there today? I am. Good morning to you. Good morning, John. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for calling in. And uh, we'll get to our first question here. This comes from a lady named Kathy, and she writes, If Catholics can confess to a priest and be forgiven by saying a prayer someone else wrote, why did Jesus have to die? So Kathy, of course, has a a misunderstanding of our sacrament of reconciliation. But she's referring to the act of contrition that we confess our sins. So the act of contrition does not forgive our sins. Jesus does through the priest. Jesus' death is the ultimate sacrifice to forgive all sins. But Jesus gave his authority to forgive sins to his apostles in John chapter 20. The church has the authority to impose disciplines on the faithful, as shown in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. The grace that Jesus won for us through his sacrifice is offered 
to us through the procedure established by the church that Jesus left behind to carry on his mission. That church also assembled and preserved the Bible in the late 300s, and that church is the Catholic Church. Anything you'd like to add to that, John? Yeah, I would say to Kathy that uh, if you look at the Old Testament and you understand that the Old Testament points forward to the New Testament, then you see in the Old Testament that confessing your sins to the priest was the normative means of forgiveness. That's how your sins were forgiven. And in the Old Testament, it says that the priesthood is perpetual. So we should be able to find a version of that priesthood today. And I kind of want to amplify what you said, that what she's doing is she's confusing two things. The fact that we go to the priest for confession does not erase the cross. It does not erase the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. In fact, it is the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross that makes confession possible, that makes the forgiveness of sin possible, not only pointing forward to us, but pointing backwards to those people in the Old Testament. It kind of travels through time. But you look at when Jesus uh, cured one of the lepers, when he, you remember when he cured the lepers, what did he tell them afterwards? He told them to go to the priest. So right. going to the priest is, is the method that God established. It doesn't erase the cross. It's how the graces earned at the cross are applied to us. We Catholics you know, have such a larger understanding of what Jesus' sacrifice was about. Um, but Protestants are taught a very simple version of Jesus' sacrifice and that, you know, Jesus died for everybody and all you have to do is believe in him and you're good to go. But Right. Well, the way that I would, the way that I would put it is um, I can go to the car dealership and tell the car dealership, give me a new car. I have $50,000 in the bank. Well, until I pull the money out, <laughs> I can't buy the car. So the, the 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 graces earned by Jesus at Calvary is mon- is the money in the bank, but it still has to be applied to our debt, and it has to be applied to our debt by the means that He prescribed for us. Absolutely, and if you read all of the New Testament, and you also read all of the Old Testament, you know, you understand those kind of things. But Protestants, yeah. you know, well. They start out, um, Martin Luther was, you know, like the first one that broke away and, you know, he pushed this idea of faith alone. Then Calvin comes along with grace alone. And then we're, because they push these alone ideas, you know, all that stuff in the New Testament that talks about how you you have to do stuff, well, that doesn't Mm -hmm. count anymore. Right, and the other thing that that the alone stuff counters is what the gospel teaches us. Uh, it, it 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 severs the bond that Jesus prescribed for us to be able to resolve these kind of conflicts. In Matthew chapter eighteen, it tells us try to reserve, uh, resolve your difference with your brothers between you and him. If you can't resolve it between you and him, take two or three uh, people as witnesses. 
And then if he won't listen to the witnesses, what does it say? It says, take him to the church. And if he won't listen even to the church, well, teach him as a, you know, treat him as a, as a tax collector or a sinner. So mm-hmm. Jesus gave us the church as the resolution, resolution of these conflicts. And when we, when we start making everything alone, 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 well, everybody knows the old, oldest concept in war is divide and conquer. And that's what the devil is trying to do, divide us so he can conquer us. Right. Okay, so here comes another question from a friend over in Pakistan. Amos says to fear God's coming, and Revelation says to rejoice. Why is it different? So in Amos chapter 5, the day of the Lord, a dark day, uh, starting at verse 18, alas, for you who desire the day of the Lord, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and it was bitten by a snake. So in Amos chapter 5, it seems like the day of the Lord would be a dark day and something bad. But in Revelation 19, the rejoicing in heaven. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from there the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and all who fear him, great and small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the sound of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of Mighty thunder peals crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her he has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant and with you and your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so this is, uh, we're learning here that at, in the time of Amos, you know, the Jews were quite corrupt, and Amos is trying to get them to turn back to God. And, uh, but in Revelation, it's Jesus' second coming, and we should rejoice at Jesus' second coming because he's going to restore the new Israel. And, 
it will be a wonderful time because Jesus will come back and dwell with us. So when you're sinning, you should fear God and fear his coming back. And that fear should induce you to want to turn back to God. But if you are in covenant with God in the state of grace, we should look forward to Jesus' second coming. Anything you'd like to add to that, John? Yeah, a couple of things. What, what uh, this person is doing is he's kind of conflating a, a couple of different things. Well, first of all, the great whore that Amos is talking about that uh, foretells, points forward to Revelation chapter 17 and 8. There are a lot of anti-Catholics who try to put the stamp of that's the judgment on the Catholic Church. It's actually the judgment on the city of Jerusalem. In fact, it says uh, in Revelation 17:18, it says the harlot that you saw is the great city, and in Revelation 11:8, it says the great city is where our Lord was crucified. So it's the city of Jerusalem. And when you take these things and you just kind of lump them all together in one bowl, then it does exactly what what you said. It creates confusion. But you nailed it right right on the head when you said that. Well, the coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord, is going to be either a joyous day or a day of terror, depending on what side you're on. <laughs> if you're if you're on the side of the sheep, it's going to be a day of joy. If you're on the side of the goats, it's not going to go well for you. Uh, and we get to decide what side that we're going to be on. So it's both. It's both a day of joy and a, uh, a day of terror. And we get to, to decide which one it's going to be for us. Amen. God is always ready to welcome us back if we just turn back to him. But if we choose with our free will to turn away from God, you know, he loves us enough to let us leave him. Um, and the story of the prodigal son is a great example of that. You know, the the father loves his son enough to give him his inheritance when he asks for it and he goes and squanders it and then mm -hmm. you know after he gets to a very low place you know where he has to feed pigs which would be like the lowliest job a Jew could possibly have uh, he realizes that you know he needs to turn back to his father's house and you know, right. he's willing to be a slave be treated as a slave in his father's house, but instead his father greets him with a great big party because his son, who was, you know, had left the household and was dead in Christ, you know, comes back. Yep. Well, this goes back to your first question, Ken. The first, the, the first question that the person offered is, well, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, then, then why do we have to go to confession? Well, people need to understand Jesus wants to show us mercy. That's what he wants. He came, He loves us so much. He wants so much to be merciful to us that he came and died an unspeakable death for us. But people need to understand that Jesus' mercy must be reconciled with his justice because his justice is perfect. And Jesus cannot show mercy to a person that doesn't want it. In other words, Jesus cannot show mercy to a sinner who refuses to repent. 
And that's why we must go to confession. And that's what the prodigal son did. The prodigal son had to, uh, he had to suffer that humiliation. He had to suffer that, that repentance, that contrition in order to be reconciled with the father. And of course, as the prodigal son is running back towards the father, the father is, uh, I mean, as the prodigal son is walking back towards the father, the father is running back towards him. We get that image. But for a person who refuses to repent, who refuses to humble themselves, their sins cannot be forgiven because to do that, God would have to violate his own justice and God cannot violate himself. Exactly. God's justice is, you know, something that, uh, you know, is immutable. Is immutable, yes. And it would be unfair to everybody, including God, for him to just change his mind. Uh, but of course, John Calvin invented the the idea of the elect, and um, we're all uh, irredeemable. But if you're one of the elect, right. you know, God imputes righteousness to us. And even though we're still sinners and deplorable to God, you know, we hide behind right. Jesus. Well, John, John Calvin invented a paradigm that turns God into a monster. <laughs> because exactly. if, if, yeah. you, if, you, if you get the image of a, of a little boy playing with uh, plastic soldiers, okay, and he just randomly picks one up and puts it in the toy box and picks another up and throws it in the fireplace. That's John Calvin's image of God, is that there are some that are destined for salvation and some that are destined, and there's really nothing, there's no sense or logic or reason to it. Their, their acts have nothing to do with it. You can be the worst sinner ever, but God preordained you for salvation, or you can be the greatest saint ever and God preordained you for hell, well, that takes God's perfect justice and turns it completely on its ear. Right. And, uh, you know, like Calvin taught that, you know, all the punishment for the sins of the elect was put on Jesus. So those people that are the elect get off scot-free and Jesus has to take our punishment. Uh, and that's not actually God's plan, <laughs> God's no. uh, plan was like Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice, something the infinite sacrifice offered back to God to forgive the sins of everybody. But Jesus, you know, in John chapter 20, tells us how that grace is applied to believers by confessing to the apostles or the, their successors and the ones that the, his successors have delegated that um sacrament too and then jesus grace is applied to us through that and if you look at the old testament and all of the new testament it makes sense but if mm -hmm. you slice and dice the new testament you can uh, find john calvin's theology <laughs> but you gotta right. leave a whole lot out <laughs> right like the 25th chapter of the of the gospel of matthew for instance mm-hmm you would have and, to remove uh, that from your Bible. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I was talking about, well, I always mention like 1 Timothy 
uh, chapter two where it says, you know, God wants all men to be saved. But John Calvin says, you know, no, God just wants the elect to be saved. Right. And Calvinists have, you know, tried to say that, you know, that all in First Timothy chapter two is like all of the elect. But if you just read all of chapter two, you know, it says Paul is telling Timothy to have the church pray for even the Roman rulers who are pagans. Um, a mm-hmm. pagan Roman ruler could be one of the elect, according to right. Calvinist theology. <laughs> Right. Well, you even look at Romans chapter 2. You look at Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 2. It's very explicit. It says, God will render to each man according to his works. Uh, You Uh can't get much clearer than that. Exactly. And Peter, Paul talks about uh, in Romans chapter 2 there about how the natural man could be saved by following the natural law written on his heart. So, you know, that gives hope for even, you know, pagans that we haven't reached yet with the gospel. And, you know, we can understand how, because God wants all men to be saved, and we will be judged by what we knew and what we did with the knowledge that we had. Amen. All all one has to do is read the parable of the talents in the gospels to see that. That parable is about to the man who had... Ten, he went out and and multiplied it and got ten more. The man who had five, he went out and multiplied it and got five more. But the man who took his talent and buried it in the dirt uh, is is the man that will that will not be saved. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here comes another question. Um, I think this one came from Pakistan also, and. The question is, like, some people say Merry Christmas, and other people say Happy Christmas. Um, And the priest over in Pakistan says Merry Christmas also helps remind us that Jesus came to us through Mary. And even though the Merry Christmas is M-E-R-R-Y, as in, like, being happy, uh, it does help remind us that through Mary, and it seems kind of a uh, a cultural kind of thing that the places in the world that are English speaking, but that English came from the you know country well from the UK, uh, England basically, uh, they say Happy Christmas. So you'll hear Happy Christmas like in Australia. Uh, in England now, uh, perhaps South Africa, in India, places like that, where the England England had spread the English language around the world, but here in America we say Merry Christmas, and both mean the same thing. But it's kind of interesting the way language spreads, and even though, you know. American and English, uh, England, the UK English, it's the same language. There are cultural differences between them, uh, and they use different words for different things. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say the two words are interchangeable. 
Um, it's it's not like I mean there are different there there are times when the difference between American English and British English really is profound. For instance, we call a judge your honor, they call a judge your worship, uh, which is uh, two different, very different connotations. Worship in their context means it means something different than in our context. Uh, but I would say the words happy and, and, and merry are interchangeable. And if using M-E-R-R-Y helps you to remember the Blessed Mother, I, I don't see any harm in that. I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I work on older cars generally for a living, and when I'm working on an old English car, if you're reading the manual for the old English car, there's a, they use different terms for, you know, what we would call, they have different British terms for things that we have different terms mm-hmm. for in American English, like um, the the part, the cover that goes over the engine of the car, in British English, that's the bonnet, uh, where, as in America, we call that the hood. But in British English, the the top that folds down, you know, what we would call an, here in America, they call that a hood. Hmm. And uh, the trunk lid that we refer to in America is called the boot in, or the boot lid in British English. Uh, a generator is referred to as a dynamo and things like that. Yeah. And uh, when you, you put a car in a garage and, and, and raise it up, that's called a lift in, in America. But in Britain, a lift refers to what we would call an elevator. What takes people up in a building? So that that's just another example. Yep. And uh, oh, like the seat cushions are referred to as squabs in British English. Squabs. Uh, squabs. That's yes. interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure where that comes from. Oh, and another great one was for uh, cars. We call that a parking lot, and in British English, that's called a car park. Okay. When when you're dealing with British people, you have to translate into American English sometimes. Right, gotcha. So here's a question that comes from uh, a friend of mine named Tim on Facebook. And he he writes, he has perfected forever those being made holy. Not a Catholic on earth can explain the beginning of that scripture from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. So, uh, here's a few different translations of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And, of course, you know, Protestants will point to uh, individual verses in the Bible and, you know, try and build a whole theology around individual verses. But, okay, this is from the Common English Bible. Verse 14 says, because he perfected the people who are being made holy with one offering for all time. Christian Standard Bible says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says. Um, And the International Children's Bible 
says, with one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In the KJV, King James Version, uh, for one by off, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the New King James Version says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The New Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition says, and this is more in context here, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. So this is the Old Testament priesthood. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who defied. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days. Now, the key word in all of this is being, which shows that becoming holy is a process. Baptism makes us holy at the time of our baptism. We are fully sanctified after our baptism. But because we have free will and the tendency to sin, also known as concupiscence, uh, we do fall into sin if we live beyond our baptism. And that's why Jesus gave his apostles the authority to forgive sins so that we can have our holiness referred, restored to us. Uh, and after a good confession, you are again sanctified. And the idea that you know, we can be perfected forever, we can be perfected forever if we don't sin. Or if... After being baptized, you die right after that. You have been perfected forever. But our state of grace, our state of sanctification, can change throughout our lifetime, depending on what kind of sins we commit and whether we've been to confession or not. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, the answer is right there in the context. It's just like you said, it's, the the qualification is they are perfected forever, those who have been sanctified. It's very clear that he's referring to those who have gone through the process of sanctification. And this is one of those one of those things where they equivocate words and, and they can redemption, justification and sanctification as all in the same they all those those three words just basically mean the same thing. Well, they don't. Redemption is what Jesus did at the cross. Uh, uh, he redeemed the entire human race, which is to say that he gave the entire human race access to that salvation. But you still have to go through the process of sanctification. Now, there is not a one-size-fits-all process to sanctification. For some people, it will be quick. For other people, it will take an entire lifetime. But sanctification is the process of taking off the old man, dying to the old self, 
and becoming a saint. That's what it means. Sanctification means sanctification. And at the end of that process, wherever and however that process ends, that's when we are justified. And when when is that? Well, that's on the last day. And you stand justified before God. And and you know, John Calvin and and a lot of the Protestants have this idea of uh imputed righteousness where Jesus declares the the sinner justified, declares a sinner justified, he imputes to their to their uh account Jesus' righteousness. Catholics don't believe that. Catholics don't believe that Jesus declares an uh, an unrighteous man righteous because that would violate God, uh, Jesus' justice. Jesus uh, Jesus makes the unsinner uh, makes the sinner justified. He makes the unclean clean. His blood truly washes away sins. It doesn't mask it. What was it? Who was it? Luther that talked about a, a blanket of snow over a pile of dung. That's that's how he completed salvation. Mm-hmm. We don't believe that. Right. The Luther and Calvin, you know, tried to teach this idea that you know we can hide behind Jesus' righteousness and God only sees Jesus' righteousness, and not our sinful, our actual sinful nature. Um, as if we can fool God, and I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it sounds great, <laughs> maybe why they they clung to that idea, but you know, do you really, you know, if you just dig a little deeper, do you really think you can fool God? It's like, I don't think I can fool God. And what an insult that is to the Almighty to think that we're trying to do that. <laughs> we're trying to trick God into let us in, let, letting us into heaven. Uh, I, I don't I don't want to do that. I I want to become the righteous person that He wants me to be, and I know I can't do it on my own. I know that, but my desire is to become holy, not to trick God into thinking that I'm holy. Exactly. And the Catholic Church offers a way to do that. Uh, and, you know, if a person comes to believe in Jesus but dies before baptism, well, the Catholic Church has a teaching on that. And we call that the baptism of desire. Because if you come to believe in Jesus but you die before you can be baptized and made truly holy, uh, church teaches that we can assume that we are uh, holy, like that person becomes holy because they wanted to get baptized, but they didn't get a chance to get baptized right? before they got killed, um, either by accident or whatever. Um, yeah. And then, of course... And people have all kinds of strange ideas on that. I, I did a debate years ago with a person that was actually taught that unbaptized babies go to hell. <laughs> that I mean... So um, and people that don't understand – people that believe that don't understand the mercy of God. They, they don't mm-hmm. understand uh, baptism of desire. They don't understand baptism of blood. Uh, what, about, what about the martyrs? What about somebody who is uh, on their way to be baptized and is killed in a car accident? God's going to say, oh, too bad. You didn't make it. You're, you're dead. You're going to hell. Uh, it's, right. it's, it's, it's an outrage against – 
God wants to extend his mercy to us. He's bending over backwards to the point where he came here and died on a cross for us. Anyone who truly seeks God's mercy with a true, repentant, contrite heart will receive it. It's the person who refuses God's mercy that is not going to receive it. Amen. Yep. And that's why the Catholic Church teaches that even an atheist could baptize, you know, a person in an emergency uh, and save that person. As long as they mm -hmm. have the desire and the right formula and water. Right. God, God, you know, wants us to be with him in heaven. And, you know, the door is wide open. But we do have to step through the door. Make no mistake, Ken, for anybody listening, make no mistake. If you do not make it to heaven, you will have all eternity to understand that you have nobody to blame but yourself. Every mm -hmm. tool is available for us to make it to heaven. Every opportunity is available for us to avail ourselves of that grace. If we do not accept uh, Jesus' mercy, we're not going to be able to make any excuses when we stand before him. Right. We'll we'll see all the opportunities that we had to turn to Jesus, and then and see how right. we chose not to. God loves us enough to allow us to use our free will to accept or reject Him. So let's move on to the next one. Um, a Facebook friend named Brian writes: Isaiah thirty-five eight states, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Then he writes, first of all, you will notice that those who are unclean would not be able to walk the way of holiness. Secondly, you notice that wicked fools also would not be able to walk the way of holiness. So it is obvious that being unclean would keep someone off the road as much as someone who was a wicked fool. In other words, being unclean was just as much a sin as being a wicked fool. Then he goes on to say, we know that Mary offered a sin offering in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, and her unclean for her uncleanness. This would have kept her off the way of holiness. There's only one thing that would allow an unclean woman like Mary to travel the way of holiness. What is that? Belief in the gospel. And, uh, you know, Protestants, our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, will ask you, you know, um, this is the gospel that saves. Now, Brian uses Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 as the gospel that saves. But many different Protestants have many different points or verses in the Bible that they point to. But this is the one that Brian points to. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, 
the promise of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Brian goes on to say, that is why Mary was able to travel on the way of holiness. It was because of her belief in the gospel, not because she was sinless. So Brian is, you know, saying that, you know, Mary was not preserved from all sin because, you know, she had to offer a sacrifice at the temple to have her holiness, her uncleanness restored. Um, And using Isaiah chapter 35 there, he equates uncleanness with being sinful. Um, But if you actually read in Luke chapter 20, was that chapter 2? Yeah. Uh, that it says that Mary and Joseph went up to the temple to offer sacrifice for them. Uh, I don't actually have the quote here. But anyway, like the sacrifice was, you know, according to custom. And it was offered... Uh, it uses the word them, um, which would re- refer to Jesus and Mary. And But the reason they did that, or they made that offering at the temple, was not because Mary and Jesus were sinful, but according to custom. Uh, yeah, here it is. Jesus is presented in the temple, starting at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what it is said, and the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. But the, uh, yeah, so verse 22 says that when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. So um, for those that don't know, um, when the Jews thought that, you know, if you touched blood, you became unclean because like the blood was the life force of a human being. That was their understanding at the time. And when a woman gives birth, you know, there is some blood in that process. And so women would be considered unclean after giving birth until they were purified again. And, but it says here that the sacrifice was offered for their purification, which indicates more than one person. And it also talks about the, uh, you know, Jesus being offered at the temple. So this sacrifice for their purification was for the mother and the child. Well, we know Jesus didn't need to be purified, and we understand that Mary didn't need to be purified because she's the Ark of the New Covenant. So from this, if we actually pay attention, we earn, we learn that it was done according to the law of Moses, because that was the custom that people did. If they didn't go to the temple to offer this, circums- this sacrifice, you know, the Jews at that time would have 
consider them unclean for the rest of their life. So they do it according to the custom, not because they needed to do it. Anything you'd like to add on that, John? Yeah. Um, well, the, the gentleman is, you know, he's, it's an equivocation fallacy. He's, he's basically, like you said, and then you spelled that out very clearly, he's equivocating ritual uncleanness with uh, the uncleanness of sin. It's the unclean, it's a person who's unclean by sin that cannot walk in the way of the Lord. Uh, and the other thing is, he's also making the assumption that just because they paid the sacrifice, they paid the tribute, uh, that that means that Mary was uh, uh, unclean, that she was a sinner, what have you. There's a scene in the New Testament where Jesus performs a miracle, but he first questions Peter and asks him, who does the temple tax apply to? Does it apply to citizens or does it apply to foreigners? And Peter answers that it applies to foreigners. Then Jesus says, then the citizens are exempt, right? And Peter agrees. Nevertheless, Jesus tells Peter to go catch a fish, pull a coin out that's worth twice the temple tax, and pay it for himself and and Peter. So Jesus establishes that he's not required to pay the temple tax, and yet he pays it anyway. So the the idea that because Mary offered the two pigeons and uh that that it means that she was that she was a sinner, his argument does not get him to where he needs to go. It's a complete non sequitur. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Protestants will, you know, pull out the verses of the Bible that say what they want to hear and then stitch them together to make a new theology that suits what they want to hear. What I want to hear, what I want to hear, and I've, you know, debated with Protestants on this, what I want to hear them address is address Genesis 3.15. Where God says, I will make enmities between you and the woman and your offspring and hers. Now, you know, they'll say, well, that, that shows that, that God, is, God is made an enemy or Christ is made an enemy. Christ is the enemy of Satan from the time of the fall. <laughs> Christ does not have to be made an enemy of Satan because Christ is all holiness. He is, of course, going to be at enmity with Satan. This verse is saying that a woman would be made the enemy of Satan. Well, you cannot be an enemy of Satan without being righteous, without being holy. And the angel Gabriel confirms this when he addresses Mary as keikeratomene, endured with perfected grace. So these verses very, very clearly show Mary is the absolute epitome of opposition to Satan. She is absolute, the epitome of holiness. And why? She had to be, because she's the Ark of the New Covenant. Exactly. And when you understand that the Ark of the New Covenant, you know, was so holy that nobody could touch it, 
you understand why Mary was a perpetual virgin and the only suitable vessel for Jesus to come to save us. Right. You look at the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, and it held all those things inside of it that symbolized Jesus. It held the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, and the Bible tells us the Word of God became flesh. The Word of God was a person. It held the manna, the bread from heaven, and Jesus said, I am the true bread from heaven. The bread from heaven is a person. It held the staff of the shepherd and the high priest. Jesus is declared to be the good shepherd in John 6. Uh, he is declared to be the high priest in Hebrews. So all of the things the Ark of the Covenant held inside of it were these symbolic foreshadowings of Jesus. Mary held the real Jesus inside of her. So Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant of the Old Testament just to steady it, and it was, and it was struck dead. He was struck dead on the spot. And yet we're to believe that Joseph, would attempt to share the womb of Mary with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's blasphemy to even suggest that. Mm-hmm. But because you know, so many Protestants don't really understand the Old Testament, they right. They get the New Testament wrong very easily. So here's another question uh, from a guy named Russell. And he says, do you see any relationship between what is happening and the current events with traditional traditionalist or the SSPX side of a contest splitting from the Catholic Church? And so I answered, from the beginning of Christianity, there have been those who want to separate from the church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about how Christians claim to be part of whomever baptized them. Um, you know, Paul talks about, you know, some say I was baptized by this guy and baptized by that guy. And very early on in the church, you know, whoever baptized you would be who you learned the faith from. And it's not like there were different versions of Christianity, but different people would have different understandings of Christianity at that time and teach it in different ways. But Paul tells them that we are all one in Christ. We're all baptized into Jesus. Uh, we're baptized into the Catholic Church, and we recognize that anyone who has been baptized in the Trinity is a member of the Catholic Church. So we're all one in Christ, no matter who baptized us. And uh, Paul writes someplace else, I don't remember offhand, that, you know, um, he says, like, I'm glad I didn't baptize, you know, this rebellious group of Christians <laughs> uh, because, you know, they're falling away from the faith and he's trying to call them back to the true faith. Uh, in Second John, the Apostle John writes about how he is not welcome in a church that he founded because another guy is now running it. And in the early two, in the late 200s and early 300s, there was a group in North Africa called the Montanists, and that believed in ongoing revelations by their leaders and living a very strict religious life. They claimed to be the real Catholic Church, 
in St. Augustine explained to them that they can't be the real Catholic Church because they are only in a part of North Africa. Everyone else in Christendom at that time knew that the Catholic Church was centered in Rome and existed all around the Mediterranean and into Europe, Asia, and India. There are always those that want to split from the church, but the church that Jesus founded carries on throughout the age. And, you know, there's always people that want to, you know, separate and <laughs> form a new version of Christianity, and we find that in Protestantism over and over. And even in the Catholic Church, you know, there are different people, there are people that focus on different aspects of the Catholic Church. But we're still all one in Christ. But, you know, if we think about the body of Christ, you know, analogous to our own body, you know, we are all, not all arms, we're not all legs, we're not all eyes, we're not all ears, we're not all mouths. But together, we form the body of Christ, each with our own role. And if you focus on just being an arm or a toe or um, a tooth even, or the heart or the stomach, something like that, you can get lose track of the rest of the body, but you need to also step back and look at the whole body of Christ and how we all have a part to play to bring people to Jesus and salvation. Anything you'd like to add on that, John? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the two most important things, the two most important virtues for a, for a Catholic are humility and obedience. Humility Amen. and obedience. And we have gotten off track as a church so many times when we lose sight of that. And the devil loves to pray, pray on that pride. He not only prays on it by you – know, there's nothing wrong with people who like the traditional mass. But let's face it. The Latin mass is beautiful. And mm -hmm. people who prefer the Latin mass, there's nothing wrong with that. So they, them saying, well, you know, I, I prefer the Latin mass over the Novus Ordo. Okay, great. But don't declare the Novus Ordo an invalid mass in doing so. Okay, because now you're falling into the sin of Gnosticism. You're acting like you have special knowledge that all the rest of us are deprived of. And the same thing happens, Ken, if you noticed in reverse with the modernists. Uh, a lot of them, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm Catholic, but I don't have to agree with the church's teaching on abortion. Or I'm Catholic, but I don't have to agree with the church's teaching on homosexual marriage, or I know the Catholic Church has condemned this particular private revelation, but I believe it's true, so I'm going to follow it. And when we lose that obedience, we lose that humility, and lose that sense and understanding that I'm little, and God is big, and he is God, and I am not, <laughs> when we lose that sense, that's when we fall into all of these, all of these kind of traps. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to guide the church. Jesus did not give the Holy Spirit to guide John Benko, except when John Benko follows the church. And as soon as I lose sight of that, uh, then I'm going to be lost. And I think that's one of the reasons 
why our postulate is growing and why it's been so successful is because we've got a group of people that are all focused on the church. Nobody's looking at John. Nobody's looking at Ken or William or Luke. Everybody's looking at God and the mission, and that's what we all have to focus on. So when we start keeping score of which group is this 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 group this church is holier because they have the latin mass this church is holier because they you know don't receive the eucharist in the hand or this church is any number of reasons why mm-hmm. why we we compare ourselves and put ourselves against one or the other and there's nothing wrong with saying i prefer this parish over that parish or 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 what have you but when we start getting into, uh, I'm of Luke, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, you right. know, we're, we're going back to that same divide and conquer that is the root of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And the devil's plan for destroying the church. Absolutely. By pitting us against one another. And, you know, I love all my Catholic and Christian uh, Protestant brothers and sisters. Uh, we're all trying to get to heaven, offers the best way to get there and the correct way to get there. But uh, I often tell my Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, if you've been baptized in the Trinity with water, then you are a member of the Catholic Church, even if you're going to your Protestant church. Uh, and even at your Protestant church, the Bible that you have, well, that was assembled by the Catholic Church. Right. And some Protestants try to say that, you know, well, no, they all the writings are from the first century. But, <laughs> yes, they are. But there are other writings from the first century that aren't in the Bible. And there was writings after that that were included in canons of Scripture of early churches. But well, that's a whole other story. And... Uh, we're running out of time for today. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really blessed to be part of this apostolate where we're not focusing on the individual personalities. We're all in the same boat, all rowing in the same direction. Yeah, and, and just uh, so anybody, so nobody misunderstands that, in case you don't know, the four persons are not John and Ken and William and Luke. <laughs> The four persons are the whole heart, the whole mind, the whole soul, and the whole strength. That's what that's referring to. Mm-hmm. And we have a larger team than just the four guys that you mentioned. You know, we've got Cherry, right. and Lisa, and Lewis, and Chantel, and, and right. Yeah, we got a good group, and it's mm-hmm. growing. Yep, and we're all here to serve the Lord, not our own personalities so that's all we have for today thanks for tuning in and if you'd like a copy of today's show notes you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on facebook and if you'd like to have me come speak at your parish you can contact me the same way and uh, i'd be happy to come speak at your parish thanks for tuning in joining the show today john Bye-bye for now. Uh, Anytime. Great. Thanks.